Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Um, hello, good morning. Um, I'm Kira Milmo, the Acting Director of Programmes at Bishopsgate Institute. Um, and we're delighted to welcome you all to Bishopsgate Institute um, for this morning's event. For those of you who are unfamiliar with our building, um, we are a place that, I guess, provides opportunities for learning, discussion and debate. Um, and we do this through a range of programs here. We have a Courses for Adults program, we have a Culture Events program, um, we have a Schools and Community Learning program, and we also have this beautiful Victorian library um, with specialist collections, particularly on sort of people's and social history, um, including collections on uh, London history, free thought and radicalism, protest and campaigning. Um, it's a free access library, so do come and visit another time. Um, we're delighted to be hosting this event with Editorial Intelligence, um, and so that was it. I really just wanted to welcome you here um, and hope you enjoy the session. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. And uh, good morning and welcome to Bright Ideas, where three conspicuously bright yet adorable people tell you what's on their minds. <laughs> These are excessively interesting times. They all talk about for about five minutes, then we give you the opportunity to respond or quiz them, or just beef about the world. No, not that. And um, uh, I'm Peter York. I'm here to keep order and express the concerns of the socially immobile in this sort of situation. Like, what do you mean by that? Or quick dictionary definition or anything like that. Our three marvellous guests are Patrick Kingsley, uh, Emma Craigie, and Justin Webb. And first up is Patrick Kingsley, who is a sort of one of the Guardian's registered young people. And he tells me he's on a contract, so he's a proper Guardian person. And he says that he is the youngest of the Guardian seed corn, the youngest of their registered YPs. And he also freelances for other places, other magazines who don't, as you put it, don't directly compete with the mothership. It's very difficult now. And so he writes for Wired and Time Out and the Daily Mail and the NME. Tempia word. NME. I don't know who reads the NME anymore in Sunday Times. And he has all those annoying uh, features like a first in English from Cambridge and editing Vasti and he's writing a book about Denmark. and. You'll have gathered he should be stopped, but he's here, Patrick. <laughs> so, yes, I'm writing about this book about Denmark, and I was, I was there last uh, month to sort of do all sorts of very exciting interviews. And um, uh, those of you who've seen The Killing will know that um, the plot of much of the first series revolves around what happens one night at a school disco. And at first, you think that. Um, someone's been murdered there, and then maybe you're led to believe that they've just been kidnapped before finally uh, it becomes apparent that maybe someone's been raped or at the very least filmed having um, group sex. And uh, if you haven't seen it, don't worry, I haven't given too much away. But if you have, you might be excited to know that I was at this school um, just a month ago. And not only that, uh, I was actually present at a school disco not too dissimilar to the one that you see in uh, the 
killing. Um, and uh, I bring this up not just because I'm a massive killing fan and uh, I find it very exciting, but because um, I thought it would be a useful way to introduce some of the things that I found really interesting about Denmark and that I'll be writing about in my book. Um, and at first you might think, why am I choosing this school? Because in one sense it's quite elitist. It's in quite a posh area of Copenhagen uh, called Osterbro. Um The children of three very high-profile politicians all go there for some reason. One's the daughter of the Prime Minister, Helle Thorning-Schmidt. Um, one's the uh, son uh, of the Danish equivalent of the Liberal Democrat Party. And another one is the um, granddaughter of Pia Kersgaard, who's the leader of um, the sort of Danish equivalent, I guess, uh, for want of a better comparison, of the BNP. Um, and added on to this, it's also a private school. So why the hell am I using it as a way into de Denmark? Well, because, it, like all private schools in Denmark, 85% uh, of the school fees are paid for by the state. Um, and what this means is uh, that you have a much wider social mix at this school, and at any private school, than you do here. Uh, because people who uh, couldn't afford to go otherwise do go. And I, before I went uh, to this disco, uh, in the afternoon I was talking to students in classes, and one of the classes, um, uh, I asked them how many of you would, would, would be coming here uh, if, if they didn't have this huge state subsidy, and about half of them put their hands up, which tells its own story. Um, additionally, uh, what I found interesting talking to these classes was that about I'd say half of them had been to what is quite a Danish institution um, uh, called the Efton School. And what you do is, uh, in between uh, high school, which, is, uh, which you leave at 16 and going to their equivalent of sixth form, a lot of students go to this Danish institution, Efton School. And, and what it is, is it doesn't have a curriculum. It doesn't have, uh, uh, you don't take exams there. You're just there for one year in sort of quite airy-fairy terms, I guess, if you're being cynical, but in quite commendable terms, if you're sort of being sincere, of expanding yourself as a person. And the idea is that you learn about philosophy and you do creative things like painting and, and drama and you're sort of, uh, sort of quite a, a sensitive moment in your upbringing, you're becoming a better person. And if you don't go to that, then chances are you might go to a very similar institution after you leave sixth form called the Folk High School, which is, again, it's a very similar concept uh, that just cases for a different age range. Um, and after you go to the folk high school, chances are you will go to university. And uh, unlike here, the um, degrees are all free. Every, every single degree is 100% free. And not only that, you actually get paid um, expenses, living expenses. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that uh, the Danish education system um, not only provides an incredible amount of um, opportunities for most people in Denmark, but also it pro uh, 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 it's not just providing opportunities, but those opportunities are focused towards expanding you as a, as a citizen. And um, it's this that I constantly saw. There are lots of bad things about Denmark, and we can talk about those later, but I'm just focused on the good things for the moment. And, and one of the good things is that you constantly see across Denmark um, uh, a desire to integrate people, promote participation in public life, create a community, sort of one national community. And you can see this um, outside the education system in, in lots of state policies like uh, you know, childcare, 
childcare is heavily subsidised by the state from the time that your ch your child reaches one, which means that for us it's much much easier for women to go back to work, which in turn means that the male to female, the ratio of men and women in um, uh, full-time employment is roughly the same, which uh, is not not what you get in most other countries. Similarly, there's very high. Um, uh, it's a very high um, minimum wage. I think it's around £10 an hour, um, which means that even if you're doing quite a boring job, like maybe a cleaner, you're getting paid well. And that in turn means that there's much less snobbishness um, about uh, between people are less snobbish about what kind of jobs are people are doing. So if you're, uh, for example, I was in Ernst a couple of weeks ago, which is Denmark's third city. And um, I was having dinner with a family, and the mother was quite a famous local actress, and the um, father was an electrician. And in this country, maybe that would be slightly surprising, but in Denmark, not so much. Um, similarly, when I was talking to these classes in this, this school that the killing was filmed at, um, they, they talked about in amazement about their recent exchange trip to Edinburgh, where they'd been to some uh, private school. Uh, in Edinburgh, and they couldn't believe how snobbish these students were they'd come across in Scotland, were. And, and they said that uh, uh, they just had a, a sort of, they hadn't realised that in other countries there was this concept of class. Now, of course, there's like classes in Denmark, and I, I don't want to make out as if it's some sort of utopia, but there's much less uh, of a sort of class consciousness than perhaps there is here, and it comes from all the, uh, all the different sort of touch points that I've mentioned. Um, additionally, uh, it's not, it doesn't, doesn't just come from state policies, it comes from you know, sort of, uh, slightly indefinable cultural um, traditions like this concept. You may have heard of hygge, which is this very Danish idea of um, uh, coziness, uh, which seems to be a kind of constant aspiration for all Danes to um, attain hygge, coziness, where you, you go home and, and, you, and, you, and you chill out with your family and friends around the fire, or maybe in the summer you go to the beach and you have you have an oil, a beer, um, and it's amazing how, how many people talk about this, or they, or they use the word cosy. Cosy is something that you're constantly talking about in Denmark, and it's because you're, you're always trying to, I think, um, sort of find this opportunities to relax, hang out with your friends, and create this sort of community, community atmosphere that you constantly see in Denmark. Similarly, there's this idea of learn, which is, um, you see it across Scandinavia, in fact, but uh, it's... Uh, it was, it was written up in a, in a novel 100 years ago, and since then it's kind of been indoctrinated into the Danish psyche. And what it means is that uh, you, as an individual, are no better than everyone else. And that has its negative sides, but also it's impressing on people from you know, when they're children that they are, um, they come from a society of equals. Um, I'm conscious I'm running out of time. But I just, uh, the, the second thing I want to, want to say is this doesn't come from this, this sense of community. Um, you know, you, you, there are facts and, and figures that you can point to to show that this isn't me just waffling on. You know, they, they have one of the top two um, Gini indexes in the world. I think it's something like 0.25, which means that the gap between rich and poor is very, very low. I think in Britain it's something like 0.34, which is a lot higher. Um, and similarly, you know, there's a reason why Denmark consistently is named one of the happiest countries in the world, and you can laugh at the idea of like quantifying happiness in it. Maybe it's a silly concept, but if you have a country that is consistently saying, 
uh, to these UN surveyors. Actually, we do feel quite contented. Well, that obviously speaks of something, and I think it speaks of a, a sort of population that is uh, um, happy uh, and and it's happy because you go out in the street and you don't see people that are markedly luckier than you are. And uh, but this isn't something that's happened overnight. This is something that goes back to the middle of the 19th century, where um, um, Denmark has a sort of identity crisis. It used to be this great medieval empire, and it's, that's been shrinking, shrinking, shrinking over centuries. And finally, it loses its final um, foreign sort of outpost in Germany in the middle of the 19th century. And that means that Danes have to sort of rethink what is it that defines itself as um, Danish. And around that time, there was this very, very influential figure, priest called Nikolai Grunsvi, who um, came up with this concept, which I've talked about at the beginning of folk high schools. But in those days, folk high schools were aimed at educating poor rural um, peasants, I guess. And Grundvi had seen that there was this march towards democracy in Copenhagen, and he realized that if uh, people, that, that democracy wouldn't work unless everyone in Denmark had the right to, to participate, and you can only participate if you're educated. Um, and so he set up hundreds of um, these schools in, a lot of them were in Jutland, which is the sort of rural, remote part of, of Denmark, away from the cosmopolitan center. And that, and a lot of the people that go to these schools, then in the later part of the 19th century, set up um, an extraordinary number of farming collectives and cooperatives, um, which, where they share materials and they share um, profits. And, and so towards the end of the 19th century, you have this huge, uh, the start of this massive um, collective Danish identity where you, people are working for each other. And again, I don't want to sort of romanticize it too much, but I think it is there, and it's, and it's important to recognize it. Anyway, the, my thought for the day is, sorry, I'm not, not going too long, is that um, in Denmark, there is a greater sense of community and of collective identity than we have here. And there's lots of problems with the country. But I think it's important to know that it's not something that, it's, that has happened overnight. And over the last few years in Britain, we've been introduced to this concept of the big society. And you know, a lot of people say, oh, I don't know what that means, or it's a bad idea. I don't think at its root it's a bad idea. All it means is, is getting people to have more say in, in how their lives are run. But what is a problem is the, is the way that I think the conservatives seem to think that if you, if you just reel in the tentacles of the state, then you know, individuals and private groups will be able to um, fill the void really quickly. But I think what Denmark shows us, and this is my defining thought, uh, is that these things uh, have take centuries to achieve, and they take, they, you need millions of uh, initiatives and policies and touch points and, um, to get to that stage. And it's not something that we can achieve in Britain in the space of one electoral cycle. Thank you very much, Patrick. <laughs> It sounds completely wonderful, but just for the sake of argument, adopting a Daily Telegraph view of this, one, or indeed a British view of it, what's the catch? There must be a catch. Two, it can't last. And um, Prospect, you will remember about ten years ago, had a very interesting article about um, Scandi world compared to our world. and the genie problems and all that. What's your view? 
What is the catch? There must be a catch, obviously. Well, I mean, so it's many, morally wrong. You pay so many, people £10 an hour, isn't it? There's so many catches. In it. I mean, this isn't a Daily Telegraph catch, but uh, I think there is a perception in Denmark that you can only have this um, all for one, one for all society uh, if it is a monoculture. And uh, for years, I mean, the reason why this, this, this identity emerged was because their borders had retreated and finally they were left with no one but Danes, having been for years a, a, a sort of pan-Baltic, pan-Scandinavian country. And, uh, and uh, I think there is a perception that, don't say, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with it, but that, that um, the, the welfare state and, and people uh, getting um, you know all, the, all these lucky benefits by being Danish can only work if if, if Danes are, are, are part of it because outsiders don't understand this collective identity and they're not prepared to put the work in um, you, you know you, uh, and so perhaps they're still um, coming to terms with how you deal with people that aren't ethnic Danes in a way that we perhaps don't quite have here uh, but um, I mean that's changing. That's changing. I think that's just what that's what countries do. And but the other, I mean another catch is that it's, it's expensive. And obviously, like Denmark, like like other countries, Denmark has uh, you know enormous financial problems at the moment. And there's a big debate on right now about how do you continue this amazing welfare state uh, in these economic climates. But what I find interesting is that there still isn't here. You know, you, you're seeing an argument being pushed, which is that you have to really real back the state, but in Denmark that's not quite the case. The policies you're seeing being suggested are, okay, well then we should work maybe one hour more a week so that we pay more tax, so that, so that we can still um, fund these uh, um, great services that we've come to know and enjoy. Um, so it's, you don't see quite so much, well, let's just get rid of that service, or let's just you know, privatise the health service. Isn't the biggest catch that if it's a classless society, there would be nothing for Peter to do? No work. <laughs> no work. No work. No fun. No. Created unemployment. Yeah. There's that. I don't know. Does everybody know that this rather important piece in Prospect about eight, ten years ago by David Goodhart about how Brits constantly felt there was a lovely, soft socialist paradise in Scandiland, but it required a very tight homogeneous society to make it work, where people thought we really are all in this together because the we is obviously a we. And without <clears throat> that, so he was suggesting, it wouldn't work, meaning it wouldn't work here, which is something to be thought on, but obviously £10 an hour. That would be the ruination of all British business. The, the economy would go even further west. Um, Next up is Emma Craigie, and Emma Craigie is a writer and a teacher and a, an education proselytizer. And this is something I know nothing about, being a victim of the progressive system myself, which means, you know, you, you play in sand. And she's the author of a wonderful sounding book, which I, alas, I haven't read, but it's, it's because I don't read novels. And it's an, uh, called Chocolate Cake with Hitler. How's that for a strong front? window of Daunt's title, and it's a novel about Goebbels' children. Yeah. Isn't that a fantastic thing? And she's campaigned for play-based early years education, set up two Steiner schools, helped set up two Steiner schools. I didn't know you could do it like it. It was a franchise. 
Um, uh, and the first Steiner Academy established under the coalition's free school policy. I was involved in that, yeah. So you're really like Toby Young? <laughs> Very like Toby You're terribly like Toby Young. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> also, she runs creative writing workshops. I've always longed to go, I don't know about you, I've always longed to go to a creative writing workshop, and I've never been to one. And I want to come to Great. your creative writing workshops. And she's currently working on a contemporary young adult novel, which is what, what something like a Julie Birchall book. Uh, that sort of thing. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Oh, that's, that's the only thing I know. Um, Emma, your thought. Yeah. Um, it's funny, because I, I had no idea what... Well, I thought Patrick would talk about Denmark, but I had no idea that, that you would talk about a school and uh, about the education of young people. The, the, where I am at the moment with my work is I'm at a research stage uh, of a novel, which is going to be about uh, teenage girls living in Bristol. And uh, Monday this week, I spent the morning in a comprehensive, well, an academy in, uh, in Bristol, um, where I did a creative writing workshop with uh, some 14, 15-year-olds. And I also had the opportunity, quite briefly, to, to interview them and ask them about their, their lives. And I thought I would just tell you about that morning. So it was, um, it was a set two English group, and there were about uh, 25, uh, there may have been slightly more because there were a few latecomers, but roughly about 25 in the group. And in fact, it was, although a very, very modern, uh, very impressive kind of glass and metal building, it was like this room in the sense that it took place in a library. And we started off sitting in a circle, and I talked about what we were going to be doing. And then uh, they dispersed around the library um, to do some, some writing. And at that point, being able to choose where they wanted to sit, um, they sat in the following groups. So there were, in the class, there were seven uh, white girls who all sat together. Um, there were two smallish groups of uh, of black boys, and I'm using the word black in a in a very general sense. I'll talk a bit more about their backgrounds. Uh, so two smallish groups of black boys who sat separately from each other, and then what the main group was of, was of uh, black girls who all, all sat together in the middle of the room, kind of all, all rushed for one great long table. And there was one white boy in the class who sat on his own. So that was the initial kind of layout. And they, they were doing their writing, and, and I went to talk to the different groups. And um, I was... I asked them about uh, where they lived. And in general, uh, there will be exceptions to this, but in general, the boys and the girls took this question differently. And the boys, all, almost all, uh, talked about their neighbourhood. And the girls, almost all, talked about their family home. And without exception, 
the boys talked about uh, the violence in their neighbourhood, or perhaps one of them said he lived in fish ponds, which was really lucky because uh, it was safer than Easton, which was where, where most of them lived. Um, and they were clear, they talked about gangs and gangs and knives and drugs and prostitutes. And they were, they're four, you know, 14 years old, mostly they, this is, they seemed quite scared. And one of them in particular told me about his older brother uh, seeing somebody being shot at the St. Paul's Carnival a few years ago. Um, when I asked them about what they had witnessed or experienced themselves, none of them told me of something that they had witnessed or experienced themselves. But there was a bit that was that was the thing that was on their mind, and um, and there was a sense of a big sense of fear. Um, when I talked to the girls, as I say, they they talked about their their family homes. And the very first girl that I spoke to uh, said to me, um, "Well, only eight of my I, only eight of my siblings live at home now." Um, <laughs> and and and, and uh, because my older brother's moved out and he's living with his fiance, and that was the most striking thing about the girls was that so many of them came from very, very large families. Um, in the class as a whole, I came across two, only two children who were a single parent of a single child. Whereas at my son's kind of rural school, that's pretty well the most common sort of family constellation. But that was very unusual in this class. Um, I talked to um, one, one girl in particular. She was, she was wearing a headscarf, and, uh, but it was a headscarf, a very decorated headscarf. She'd got lots of kind of little silver flowers in her headscarf and big, big earrings. And, um, and she started off by telling me that her life was really interesting. And, uh, and she went on to say that she lived with her four uncles who, um, and this, I just say how she described it, she said, my four uncles who are all disabled, they don't have any of the five senses. And she said, so when I get home, I have a lot of tasks. And she said, you know, we have to do everything for them. We have to, we have to toilet them. I have to get up at two in the morning and turn them. And she said, um, in fact, I'm really tired today because last night was the festival where we remember the prophet going to heaven. And so I didn't go to bed till after it was light. So I only had a couple of hours sleep. I'm sorry, I'm really tired today. Um, but she said, but we're really, really lucky because um, we have to do so much caring that we will go straight to heaven. And there was a girl sitting next to her who turned out to be related to her by marriage. And she said, my life's really boring compared to hers. Um, it's really normal. I just live with my nan and my uncle. And my mum lives opposite 
with my brothers. So I said, okay, <laughs> um, how, how, come, how come you live with your nan? And she said, well, when my mum got married, when, no, when my mum had me, she was really, really young, so she went to work and my nan looked after me and I've, and I've stayed with my nan. At which point, the girl with the four uncles said, oh, I don't live with my mum. I live with my, my nan and my grandpa and the, and the four uncles, and my mum lives down the street with her third husband and my brothers and sisters. So I, uh, I went on to, um, to talk to the other groups, and I've, I've just jotted down some quotes from, from what they said and what they wrote. So this one, is, is from a Muslim boy. Um, I live in a house with, so he, he did talk about his, uh, his family, which, which as I say was less usual amongst the boys. I live in a house with three brothers and two sisters, but all together my family are four brothers and seven sisters. And then this next one was, was one, of the, one of the white girls. I live with my dad, mum, and my three brothers and two sisters. I have four brothers, but the oldest one has moved out. I'm failing in my education because I'm really stubborn, so I don't listen as I like doing things in my own time. When I'm older and leave school, I want to go on to sixth form uh, and study health and care and social care and sociology and go on to university. Um, the, the one white boy told me that he didn't have any, he was a single child of a single mother, and he told me that he didn't have any friends in the class, and he told me that his friends were people that most people wouldn't want to hang out with, they were really mental. But um, in his writing he put, he put this, um, when I talk to my mother's friends, they all seem to say nice things about me, which always seems to put me in a better mood. And then, um, now this is one of the girls. Um, my life is crazy and loud. I have six siblings, but I only live with four. My second oldest lives with my auntie, and my youngest brother lives with his mum. I, I am, well actually she's put I have, but I am half Jamaican and half Italian. I like running and reading books. Uh, one of the white girls, um, I live with my mummy, stepmom, and annoying brother. I wake to music, I go to sleep to music. Um, I asked her if she played music and, uh, in, in any way, and she said uh, no, because the people whose music she listened to were so much better than than she was. Um, I talked to her a little bit about how my mum might get better <laughs> at music. Um, okay, one girl said she was the oldest of four sisters. I was born in Bristol, but I originally came from India. I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. Um, I am Sikh, and I'm proud of my religion. Although I have broken some rules, such as cutting my hair and removing facial hair, so I'm not so proud over that. And then the final one I'm going to read you, 
is from a Jamaican Irish girl. Um, I am my mum's first girl, my dad's second girl, and my mum's fourth child. I don't really like being the first girl because many things are expected from me. Um, she's the girl I, I spoke to first of all. I am one of ten kids. My home is warm, loving, big, crazy, loud, and caring. My bedroom is right at the top of the house. It's big. The walls are purple and white. And she told me she shared this room with her, with three younger sisters. I have a bunk bed in there and a double, which of course is mine. Yeah, I don't. That I leave you to have the thought. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, they're very extended families. Very extended. They're very for most of us, surprising and exotic configurations, have a thought for us about what that might mean. I mean how widespread do you think, how typical do you think this is of an ex-cohort? Bristol is a very particular place. Bristol is a very particular place. I mean, funnily enough, I went last <laughs> night uh, to, to an event at, a, at an inner city academy mm. here in London. And just at a, at a kind of glance, there were enormous similarities, both in the, the brand new building, a very impressive building, but also in, in the kind of um, extremely, I would say exciting, but extremely diverse, um, you know, population of, of, uh, of school pupils. Um, one thing I would say, speaking to the, the librarian afterwards, she said that at this school, it was extremely difficult to organize after school events. And, uh, and a lot of the girls particularly talked about their responsibilities. Quite a few of them happened to be oldest girls in their families. And that was quite a theme, that as an oldest girl, there was lots you have to do. And the librarian said that sometimes they might come in to get a book at the end of the school day. And someone will say, it's 3.15, I've got to go. There's a real tension about getting <coughs> home on time. And, and I, do th I think in education, it's so, I think it's really, if you are, there's so many issues here, but just one tiny thing. If you're trying to create an equal society, I think that it's so important that the main things um, happen in, in school. I mean, I, I another, a different school local to me, I've heard recently of, of, of homeworks being set where seven-year-olds were recently, they had a choice. They could either write a play or make a model of the, write a, they, write a play inspired by Shakespeare or make a model of the Globe Theatre. This is a state primary school. And, you know, it sounds marvellous, doesn't it? But I just think that those kind of homeworks are so divisive because seven-year-olds can't do those things, you know. The ones that do those, it's going to be the, the, the parents that, that, that do those homeworks. And that's where these, these girls um, um, who are going home, I mean, I know it's obviously unusual to be, be looking after your four uncles, but those, those, those children whose, whose home lives are so demanding after school are immediately losing out. And, and I, I think the, the, the core of education needs to be what happens in school and is provided to everybody. You said earlier that you noted how many of the children 
were what you call black, but, and you said you, you were going to yes. explain okay. what that meant in practice. Yeah, so, that, so what there were, um, the, the girl with the uncles um, was, she, she described herself as British born, but, and she spoke very fluent English. But at one point, she asked her friend, she said something I didn't in a language I didn't understand, and then asked her friend, how did you, how did you say that in English? So I said to her, it, it, is English not your first language? And she explained that at home, they spoke Punjab, Urdu, and then she had learnt English at school. So she's completely fluent in it. Um, so she was, there were several girls who were of Pakistani origin, um, there were a girl and, and a boy who were from India and, and who were Sikh. There, were, um, there was a, a girl from Somalia and a boy from, who'd been born in Sweden but originally from Somalia. A boy who had been born in Dubai. Um, and, but most of them, most of them had, had been born in Bristol of families either from the Indian subcontinent or um, the West Indies. Mm. Uh, as opposed to Africa? Oh, and of course Somalia. Yeah. Oh, and there was a girl from the Gambia. Yeah. How do you think those children are going to do? Well, the school, you know, the school is a huge sort of hub of learning. It's mm. not just a secondary school. There's, there's a sixth form centre. There are, um, there, are, there are lots, the school has a uniform, but there are lots of uh, young adults on different kind of community courses not, not in uniform. So I think there's a, there's, there is definitely, I, I was interested that that girl spoke of, of wanting to go on to university. There's a definite sense of education that, that, that's something that's going to go well on into the future. The other thing that really, really struck me, and this is very different from the school I went to last night in London, uh, was that, that you've got this amazing building, but it's by miles the most glamorous building in its area. So it's an area where the houses have got bins and rubbish in the front garden and not all, but the huge majority. There's a front door, you know, and one downstairs window and one upstairs window. Very small terraced houses all all around, the turn of the century. The <coughs> I thought I would go to after I'd been to the school. I thought I'd go and get a coffee. I had to walk a really long way. <laughs> I got a tea in the end. I had to walk a really long way. And all, the shops weren't boarded up, but they were um, all, the roller, you know, the metal roller shutters were all down. And had they been open, you would have been able to buy second-hand mobile phones. It was a, do you know, Where was this? It, it's an area called, uh, called Lawrence Hill. Where's that? In Bristol. Yeah. And so it, it, was, it was an area... Yeah, it was an area of considerable deprivation, and I just thought, I think it must have an impact, uh, you know, if, the, if your school, I mean, the, you know, the school was so high-tech and all these security doors and, it, you know, it was just like a massive sort of... Something that had fallen from the sky. Yeah. So I think that, that education would have a kind of, yeah, particular... 
particular slant in that way. And what I loved were the verbatims. They were verbatims, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they, they had rather, rather a creative writing way of talking, didn't they? Well, thank you, thank you very much. Um, our final speaker is Justin Webb. And Justin Webb is a very familiar voice. He's one of the BBC Radio 4 Today revolving crew of presenters. And it's our good fortune that he's not there today. And it's been, um, it's Jim and, uh, Jim and John's day, isn't it? Jim and John's day, And it was yeah. lovely today. There was yeah. Jim uh, with his very particular kind of professional class Scottish accent interviewing a Scottish tax lawyer who was sort of mirroring him and saying, is, you know, is tax avoidance immoral? It was a very Scottish sort of conversation. And they would certainly have known each other, They'd possibly be related by marriage. That's very like <laughs> The other thing very about Edinburgh society. It's, it's, it's fascinating. People told me about, I mean, when I was much younger, about this whole thing of the Scottish professional classes. And then I met him. I, jaw-dropping, wonderful. And where they live in Edinburgh is lovely. Anyway, Justin is literally a daily agenda setter. And before today, he was the BBC's man in America. And we're very lucky that he's written this very wonderful book, which came out last year, didn't it? Them and Us, which explains for benighted Brits and Europeans about the Fox News-loving, religious flyover states that we don't go to, which could be considered the real America. Justin. Thank you very much. Um, I love America, and uh, I write very positively about it. Uh, I think it's much better than Denmark, uh, for a whole host of reasons that we can't go into in, in five minutes or so. Um, the uh, income inequality, all the inequalities don't particularly worry me is they don't particularly worry most Americans. The thing that does worry me and does worry a lot of Americans is the lack of social mobility, which they thought they had until recently and which suddenly they discover they don't. And that, it seems to me, uh, goes to the heart of um, a real crisis that America is facing at the moment. And it's a crisis of uh, politics, which we know about in the in our kind of scanning of the newspapers. It was much deeper than that. It seems to me that Americans have lost the ability to tell the truth to each other about who they are and where they want to go. Uh, there's a story Ronald Reagan tells about when he was first standing for office, um, running for mayor of a small town in California, and he and his one helper go to the park and begin his campaigning career. And he, he, he goes up to a, a chap on the park bench and he says, uh, the name's Ronald Reagan, running for mayor of the this town, I hope I can count on your support. And the man says, what are you going to do about them ducks? And uh, Reagan says, uh, and he looks around and realizes there are ducks that are running around the park. And he says, sir, I will, I will pen up the ducks. I will, I will take the ducks. I will put them over there. You will be safe from those ducks. And the man says, uh, well, you're not getting my vote. I love them ducks. I love them. And, and Reagan sort of um, moves on to the next guy. He's on another park bench. And he says, names are all Reagan. Money from mayor of the town. And um, the guy says, what are you going to do about them ducks? And Reagan says, sir, I, I will just let them run free. They, they are beautiful, them ducks. You, you can feed them out of your hand. It's, it's a wonderful uh, way of life you're. And the man says, well, getting my vote, I'd shoot him. He said, I hate them ducks. Uh, so Reagan, and this is the point of the story, Reagan said, used to say to audiences, that's when he realized something about uh, leadership in democratic societies, and particularly in the United States, because there's another man on another park bench, a little way away, 
And by this time, Reagan's helper is looking a bit kind of wide-eyed and nervous, thinking this isn't going to go terribly well. And they go over to the third guy on the third bench. Uh, and Reagan says, uh, Sir, Ronald Reagan, running for mayor of this town, I hope I can count on your support. And uh, the guy says, what are you going to do about them ducks? And Reagan says, he grasped him by his shoulders and said, Sir, on the subject of the ducks, I'm with you. <laughs> uh, and that, that kind of writ large now is the way in which uh, too many people in America, on all sides of the political divide, um, uh, see the business of leadership. They fail to, uh, to uh, persuade the American people to face up to the really fundamental problems that they have and the most fundamental of those is an inability to understand that they have some choices to make, some very big choices. And it's actually choices, you know, going back to the Danish model, they are nothing like a Danish welfare state. But America actually is much more of a welfare state than most Americans fully understand. So if you think of Alaska, and the kind of root and tootin', you go out and, and, and the kind of, I don't know if anyone's ever seen Sarah Palin's Alaska, it's a fantastic TV series. And you can imagine, I mean, it is actually true. You get up in the morning, you get into your seaplane, which is moored next to your house, you take off, you, you, you've got a gun with you, you go and shoot something, kill it, bring it home and eat it. And that actually is your day in Alaska, pretty much. You've got a big screen TV as well. But you, you, know, you, you don't rely on the state or on the federal government, on the taxpayer for anything. And most Americans have in their hearts a kind of sense of themselves as Alaskans in that way. In fact, Alaska is the most federally funded state per capita in the entire union, um, which I think is an extraordinary fact, because it goes to the heart of this sort of sense that Americans just don't grasp the extent to which they are dependent on each other, they are dependent on the federal government, uh, perhaps dependent is too, too strong a word, but they have a relationship with the government, they have a relationship with a welfare net, they want to have what they call social security, pensions in the end, they very much like and approve of that part of their healthcare system. Um, Medicare, which is aimed at older people and which is free, which is basically very much like the NHS. Um, but they are unwilling to understand that if that is the case, then they must also find a way of funding it in the longer term, which is why they have not only $15 trillion uh, of debt, but potentially over the next 20, 30 years, that figure being added to, to an unsustainable, even Greek level which if you can imagine happening in the United States and the bond market suddenly turning on them would be a calamity not just for that country but also for the kind of global balance of power which is why I think it's so important. But Americans, um, uh, you know, and I think it has, to be perfectly frank about it, particularly afflicted the Republican Party. Uh, this inability to be absolutely honest with your own supporters about the choices that there are on offer. And it was brought home to me during the, the, the Obama-McCain election when I was following McCain and I was in a small town in, in um, I think, rural Ohio. And um, uh, the subject then was, was foreign affairs. And there was a big issue about uh, America's place in the world and also a big issue about Barack Obama and who he was, and um, it was one of those faux town hall meetings where they're, you know, they're on a little stage at the, at the front, and McCain's wearing his kind of cowboy kit, and uh, in, in theory, anyone from the town can come in and ask a question. In fact, of course, they all had to be Republicans for the last 50 years to get anywhere close to it, but, they, but so they, they, there's a microphone, McCain hands it out, and people take the microphone and they ask questions like, uh, Sir, uh, you are just wonderful. How wonderful will you be as president? I mean, it's, 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 not, 
not John Humphrey's sort of sort of thing going on. But uh, there's a little lady. This is actually on YouTube. She, she, uh, I was there in the audience. She takes the microphone. And she says, "Sir, I just want to say, uh, Senator McCain, you would be wonderful for this country." And he 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 leans forward. He says, "Thank you, Mum." And he's taking the microphone back. And she snatches it back and she says, "I, I want to add something. Uh, that Barack Obama, uh, he would be a disaster." And uh, McCain says. Yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Uh, he would be a disaster. And then she takes it back a third time, and she says, "That Barack Obama, he is an Arab." And you can see the kind of colour draining out of McCain's face. Because all that's a perfectly acceptable thing to say in rural Ohio, and they would all think that uh, Obama is an Arab. Uh, but actually, this is going out on coast-to-coast -coast TV as well. So there's a problem here. And McCain, and this is the the the, the issue about speaking truthfully to your own people. He takes the microphone back and he starts quite well because he says, no ma'am, no ma'am, that is not true. Uh, uh, Senator Obama is not an Arab. But then he adds this. He says, Senator Obama is not an Arab. He is a family man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think you know, like, that really does sort of sum up the inability of people really to understand you know, who is what, who does what in the world, kind of what other people are like, what foreigners are like, what Senator Obama... I mean, it's so, on a kind of massive scale, seemed to me to fail to be perfectly frank with his own people um, and with that old lady in particular about what was going on in the world. Um, it is also the case, I think, on Barack Obama's side that he has utterly failed equally to be clear and plain and to get through a message, a coherent message to the American people. Um, and, and it's fair to say that he had a pretty tough... I mean, all presidents have difficulties when they come to power. Obama had, you know, came to power at a pretty awful time. In fact, there was a great um, headline. The American headlines tend to be very pedantic and, and dull, um, uh, uh, kind of uh, post-Leveson, you, you, you could almost say. You probably shouldn't. Uh, but... but um, the, the satirical newspaper, The Onion, I don't know if anyone's ever seen The Onion, the satirical newspaper, The Onion, had the best headline of all uh, the day after Obama was elected, and it was, Black Man Given America's Worst Job. Uh, so, you know, and, and I think, you know, to an extent, that was, that, was, that was the case. But I think it's also the case that Obama has sort of, um, not managed to run with that job and to take the American people with him in the direction that he wants to go, and to be plain again about the financial situation and the need for America, if it wants to provide any kind of social welfare, to find a way longer term of um, paying for it. And Obama is such a strange guy because he is you know, a wonderful speaker, as we all know, but, but sort of one-to-one -one and in small groups where a president, you think of Lyndon Johnson, those wonderful photos of him using his physical presence to, to, to bully people. He, he, he's, Obama is not good at that. And when I interviewed him, it really came home to me. When I interviewed him, I, I, I'd thought, when you do all the, the kind of messing about with the cameras and the lights and, and stuff, there's a moment when you're sitting with a famous person, whoever it is. And it's slightly awkward sometimes, because you're just there, kind of saying, oh, well, here we are then. Uh, uh, and I'd already tried to move our chairs slightly closer together, thinking about the special relationship, which had been a disaster, because people had appeared out of the woodwork, so, sir, step away from the chair, sir, because, because it's, it's, it's all incredibly regimented, the way in which a president gives his interview. So we're sitting there, and they're fiddling about with the lights, and I thought I'd think of something that I can commune with this man about. And I, my, my son has this uh, weird, rather unpleasant, chronic illness, type 1 diabetes. And Obama had mentioned this illness, very unusual illness, in a speech um, 
just quite recently. So I, I thought I'll talk to him about that. So we sat down and I said, sir, can I just start by saying I'm really delighted that you mentioned type 1 diabetes. We're afflicted with it. My son had been quite recently diagnosed and um, it was just wonderful to hear you talking about it. It had been a speech about stem cell research. And Obama, you know, his response was just stunning because he knew, he knew much more about it than I did, much more. And he had all the kind of scientific facts and figures and, and what the pathways to a cure might be and everything. But I thought when I was sort of sitting there with him, you know, if it had been W, uh, you know, we'd have, been, we'd have been hugging and crying and, and we'd have been kneeling on the floor by the end of it. And, you know, he'd have been, he wouldn't have understood a single thing about type 1 diabetes or, or, or had any interest, actually. But there would have been that kind of incredible sort of, and, and, and this is something that, that W did have, actually, this sort of empathy, this warmth about him. My colleague Matt Fry went to interview um, uh, Bush just right at the end of his presidency and says that he, at the end of their interview, Bush says to him, so Matt, you know, how did that go for you? And Matt says, wonderful, thanks for it. Do you want me to sign something? And Matt says, do you want me to sign your arm? And, he says, and then he says, do you want to see the Oval Office? And Matt says, oh, gosh, yes. So Bush takes him up to the Oval Office. Do you want to see the Rose Garden? And they go out to the Rose Garden. And Matt says he actually found himself saying to the President of the United States, I'm terribly sorry, but I've got to go. And you get none of that thing with Obama. And that writ large, I mean, it doesn't matter about his, his relationship with individual journalists and his, his but, but writ large he has failed to do that job of, of kind of getting his message across to the American people and it's left the country in this sort of terrible drifting um, potentially disastrous mess where they are heading for really serious financial problems at least as, as serious uh, as Europe's um, pretty soon and with no sort of firm way of, 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 of getting around them. Um, I, I should just mention, finally, the, the, the special relationship. There is obviously a special relationship between us and them. There's no question about it. If you go to the flyover states, you get out of uh, Wichita, Kansas, or normal Illinois or somewhere, and you say, hello, I've just arrived from London. Uh, you go to Starbucks, because there will be a Starbucks, and it will be open, and you say, could I have a cappuccino and a muffin, please? Uh, you know, they'll say, oh my gosh, could you just say that again? It's so beautiful. Uh, uh, and I, you know, I, I spent my entire eight years in America impersonating Hugh Grant, basically. And it, uh, I can tell you, it, 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 it absolutely does, does work. Not, not in every respect, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 the, here's the problem. You go to Washington, and um, uh, you only have to look at the kind of demographics of the United States and political demographics of the United States, the key states, the states where the election is fought, and particularly in the Mountain West, where there are huge Hispanic communities, approaching now 50% of the electorate in, in some of these states. Um, but also, more generally, the Hispanic part of the population, this incredible rise that there has been. So that you sort of, if this was a graph, if I were doing a PowerPoint, there'd be sort of that, that's, that's pretty much the birth rate among, among white and black um, uh, people, actually. And, and, and the Hispanic thing is, is going like that. And it's, it's partly immigration, it's partly illegal immigration. Yeah. Most of Mexico lives in, uh, in, in the United States. But it's also partly, actually, the birth rate among people who are there perfectly legally. And that has a massive potential um, for political change quite soon and one of the things that it changes is their sense of attachment with us because if you're born in, in, in um, uh, Mexico somewhere, you, you know, the United Kingdom might well, may well be the United Arab Emirates, there isn't a kind of sense of, 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 of where we are and the Mayflower link 
um, is, is hugely reduced. So it does have a, a real impact. And I, I, you know, my last day in the White House, I went to see a guy, I can't say who it is, but he's a very senior official, you know, if you're interested in American politics at the time, he's gone now, but you would know who he was. And he, he, I went to say, um, and I, I, I brought up actually um, the issue of the bust of Winston Churchill that uh, had been in the Bush Oval Office and the first action of Barack Obama uh, before he did anything else, was get rid of the bust of Winston Churchill. They stuck it in taxi, sent it back to the uh, uh, British Embassy or somewhere. Um, and I said to this guy, why did you do that? What, what were you thinking when you, when you um, got rid of Winston Churchill so early in the presence? And he said, oh, you people, you're obsessed. He said, we thought it was Eisenhower. Uh, he, he said, you elderly white guys all look the same to us. Uh, and I think there is a kind of sense of that, not, not only in the Obama administration, but also writ large in American politics. We have to understand that our importance to them is, is for, for obvious demographic reasons, going to be reduced in the years ahead. And fighting, railing against that, um, our relationship is no longer special. It's now essential. Um, but even at the level of essential, I, I think it's unrealistic. Thank you very much, Justin. Mm. Now, you've described uh, the US as being in a bad way, or potentially in a very bad way. What strikes, I think, British viewers now, who just watch Newsnight, so you don't have to be a full-on policy wonk, is that it's also in a kind of a mad way. Uh, when you look at American, popular American pundits, you look at Fox News, you look at the riveting, jaw-dropping Anne Coulter. I don't know whether any of you watched Anne Coulter. Um, you see what's happened in the Republican primaries and that sorts of people who are pitched up. Are they, you know, maybe this has been an undercurrent that we haven't seen before, but it looks mm. very mad and um, very, as they say, locked in. Yeah. I mean, if I could just take the, the issue, the, the, the media issue, in a, in a sense, is a, is a separate one, and it's to do with a uh, freedom that um, we don't have in this country at the moment, because our broadcasting is strictly regulated. Uh, and if you look at our broadcasting versus American broadcasting, I think most of us will think we're perfectly happy with what we've got. But uh, in the longer term, if people are accessing their news on uh, mobile devices and are able to watch video that, that perhaps you in your later career will naturally do as part of your reporting job for The Guardian or, or whoever, then why should that be governed by different rules to the rules that govern the box in the corner? And we are going to have to face as a country and probably 10 years or so, um, uh, real decisions about whether it is feasible, actually practical and legitimate to have our sort of rules that suppress the kind of Fox News madness in this country too. And I suspect, actually, and it's an open question, and uh, the, the, I, I suspect we will be facing it and, and we will probably have to at least relax our rules and go down the Fox road, which of course leaves the interesting question of where the BBC stands in that. And I don't speak for the, the BBC, of course, uh, and nor am I allowed to speak about the BBC, but I will say um, this, that because I think it's a, an incredibly important um, issue, and it's genuinely regarded in the BBC as an open issue as well. What does the BBC do? How does that affect the BBC? If you assume that the BBC does remain regulated and does 
uh, have impartiality still at its core, can it then exist in that world? Will it, be, uh, will it get more respect because it's the only impartial broadcaster, or will it actually get less because the view will be actually you're all uh, biased now and you are BBC biased as well, it's just that you're not telling us the way in which you're biased. And that, and that, that kind of open question, I think, is, is one that we're going to have to face. But in that, that terrible maelstrom of American broadcasting, which I have to say is quite fun in many respects. We tend to see, you know, we're always in our reporting of America, we focus on the kind of mad stuff. So all the religious, you know, we focus on crazy evangelicals. Actually, most American religious people are perfectly decent, um, in fact, extremely decent, um, uh, thoughtful uh, people. We, we, we go off on Mormons. There was a piece recently suggesting that Mormonism was a kind of cult. It's not. It's a, you know, it's a, it, my personal view as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an atheist is it's no more mad nor less mad than any other religion. But it's, it's, you know, they, they have a kind of um, sense of, um, uh, we have a sense of them always, and I think this particularly exists in broadcasting. We just look at the Ann Coulter's, the kind of mad stuff, and actually most of it isn't as mad as we suspect and, and it is a world actually that we're going to have to embrace as well well uh, the new culture f foundation is very keen uh, this is a the new culture foundation is a sort of right-leaning i think it's the bbc word for these things right-leaning think tank which has just published a report not a very very rigorous report i think it's fair to say accusing the BBC of innate cultural left-leaning bias. It's like, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. The belief in impartiality is part of that, according to the New Culture Foundation. It's very, very fascinating. But the American media scene and its fantastic um, diversity does mean there's a lot of room for disinformation and smearology. Yes, and, and this is where the business of, of running for president, the other question you ask comes in, and it is terribly, you think of Donald Trump, I mean, and, and, and that pizza chap, Cain, um, uh, um, who, who, who ran mm. early on. I mean, th these are extended book tours, basically. It, it is no longer, a lot of it, it attracts kind of billionaire nutcases, uh, and, and, and that further depresses, I think, Americans about their political system. And there is some evidence that um, people's uh, involvement in politics is actively discouraged by these kind of, of, of characters becoming um, uh, the obsession of, of the media. The problem is that, that if you run for president, your life is absolutely... That's why I was interested in this discussion we had started possibly slightly accidentally by the government about whether ministers here should have their entire tax returns put out there. You know, in, in, in America, it doesn't stop there. It's everything about your life. It's your medical history if you're running for president as well. Um, and and the, the result has been that quite a few people have just decided, able people, um, I'm not going to do it. And, uh, you know, I think several Republican, potential Republican candidates this time around who have... Mitch Daniels in, in Indiana, who I think would have been a dull but, but decent candidate um, and might still be a vice presidential candidate, his, many, many years ago, his wife left him uh, and set up home with someone else and then decided she made a mistake and came back. Uh, not, it's not the most heinous thing to, to have happened, but, but he knew and she apparently asked him 
could you just not do it? Because I know that this will be gone over a million times all day, and I can't stand the pressure of that. So, you know, you think how intrusive things are here. You, 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 it's, it's that squared in the United States. And if they can't find a way of allowing people to be ordinary human beings and stand for president, then plainly they and all of us are in trouble. I remember watching on TV here that incident you described with, with McCain on the trail. My immediate thought was, and maybe I'm too paranoid, that that old woman was in fact an actress, a plant, you know, to say to innocent Americans, he is an Arab. Because that's what happens there. The funny thing is, though, I mean, I'm sure it does happen, but you don't need, you don't need the actors and actresses it just in rural Ohio. Yeah. Oh, no. No, 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 no. And I went up and down the queue, and it's a wonderful kind of combination. Americans are so polite and, and genuinely kind of warm. And I, I was going up and down the queue outside there saying I was from the BBC, and they were, you know, Sir, you're welcome in our town. And then they said, but there'd be a pause, and they'd say, the BBC is a socialist organization. Yeah. And one, one guy, I mean, he tried to, you know, almost like being kind of stopped by a religious person in the street. He tried to get me to resign there, here. <laughs> he said, sure, you should not do it. You should not do it. <laughs> you don't need actors. <laughs> Unless, of course, they're all actors and I was fooled. But yeah, 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 yeah. Because at the, in these recent Republican primaries, the BBC, I think it was, was doing box pops. And they had a similar lady and she said, that President Obama is a Marxist. And you wanted to say, lady, what is a Marxist? Of somebody who is, I would say, well to the right of David Cameron and on many, many issues. Anyway, now it's your turn um, uh, to sound off, to quiz our wonderful speakers, um, to do whatever you want, except do not rant. <laughs> Do not go on for a long time. Questions are better than observations. And if, if there are questions, say who you're directing those questions to. I think I saw a, a hand go up at the back. David Brown. Um, there was a, a theme going through, I think, two if not all three of them, about disconnect between politicians and the public. And... There was a story last night about O-levels being brought back in replace of GCSEs in the education world. Has politicians are they more disconnect now or uh, around the world? And we discuss American politics and then the media relationship, and, and, and we discuss about education and the reality with politicians and, 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 and kids. Is there a bigger disconnect now than there ever was, or or, or is it just more more intent, uh, uh, more scrutinised because of the media? Emma? I have no idea. <laughs> I know, I'm... Were they connecting with those kids? Uh, there's... On Google, there are a lot of, there's a lot of ranting against the local MP for her... Uh, there's a lot of racist ranting against the local MP for her, for her support. Uh, of um, families from Somalia, but but has it changed from the part? I just, I, Justin, I maybe you, I have absolutely really no idea. No, I don't know how to judge that. I certainly, in the American perspective, I don't think there is actually. I, I, I think you can get hoodwinked into thinking, you know, as in so many respects, we get hoodwinked into thinking that our times are worse than times that 
came before, um, uh, and they're, they're not, they're just very different. And in the States, there are still extraordinary democratic impulse. Um, it doesn't necessarily take them in directions that, that British people always approve of, but, but there, are, there is a lot of voting going on in America, and a lot of localism, and a real interest in community. All that big society stuff that we kind of group about looking for, that they, they, they grow up with in most small American communities, and, and they do it, and they vote for the school board, uh, and in some states they vote for the judiciary as well. Um, that they're tending not to in, in such large numbers anymore because of all the problems that, that come along with that. But, but I mean, there is a kind of, I, I, you know, at the very top, plainly in America, there is a real problem, and actually a problem that's been exacerbated by a recent Supreme Court decision that allows virtually unlimited amounts of money to be spent on the top candidates. So if you know, you're spending a billion dollars on uh, the next US presidential election, it, it is obviously removed, and the characters we've talked about are also removed. But I think in, in the States, there is still actually a, still a very vibrant belief in and participation in um, local decision-making, which, after all, is, is what politics is. But a lot of what you describe about Obama, his non-hugginess, is typical of Peter O'Gorn's political class, people who are trained, reared, battery, developed as policy wonks, and then become politicians. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, I do, I do think that's fair. I, mean, I, think, I think, you know, you see it in this country, um, there are some politicians who do really get through to people on, on both sides of the political divide, and there's something warm and human about them. And you, when you look at their CVs, you discover actually they've done other things. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, you know, in, in the US, it, to a large extent, um, still certainly at the bottom levels, politicians are expected to be. I mean, term limits are still a big deal in the United States, and they haven't quite managed to bring it off at a higher level, but I think they're really interesting. It tends to be on the right that, that these things are discussed, but it doesn't necessarily be a right-wing idea. It's something that I wonder if we might revisit here at some stage, that actually politicians should not be, uh, it should be impossible to have a political career, basically. I mean, that, that was the idea mm. of, of, of term limits. You, you, um, you have a constant throughput of, of people. And um, it's, it, I have to say, it's an idea that went off the boil for quite a long period in the States, but it is still, in my sense, it may come back because it addresses some of that issue of, 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 of persuading other people, involving other people in, in doing it. Patrick, what about Denmark? You were saying everybody is a politician, everybody's participating. They're all in uh, there well, together. Well, obviously, that, that's not entirely true, but I think there's an aspiration uh, for maybe that to be the case. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't know how it has changed. Um, I wasn't there for long enough, but I've, um, you know, a lot of you may have seen Borgen and uh, the Prime Minister in that cycles to work. And I, when, I, when I went to the Parliament to do some interviews, that is very much the case. The, 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 the parking lot outside that you, see in the, that you see in the TV show is stuffed with what must be up to a thousand uh, bicycles. These are people that cycle to work. Um, anyway, they're not getting sort of necessarily all getting sorry for different uh, ministerial cars. Um, so I mean, yeah, but then you talk to people, you know, ordinary people, and they'll say, oh, you know, I can't trust the politicians. It's the same, you know, it's the same disconnect that you find here. But perhaps there is a slightly closer relationship between people in the political class and and 
um, outside Parliament. Aren't all those Danish programmes really a warning against coalition government? <laughs> well, they are, aren't they fascinating? The whole thing is being done kind of behind closed doors. And these yeah. trolls, and, you know, and the door slams, and they're all, they're all called trolls. And they're, maybe, well, it's a warning against that as well. But it, but it just seems to me to be a fascinating insight into how they make their decisions. And I'm not sure that it's a decision-making process that would necessarily suit us. Even in one, and I think it was last week, there was a smart drinks party, and one Danish politician was saying to another, we all know that Denmark is really run by about four people, and all this democracy and participation, I'm paraphrasing, this democracy and participation stuff is an illusion. I didn't want to believe it. <laughs> anyway, more please, lady here. Um, to that. Sorry, to that point about um, politicians, I mean, we all know, and, and both Patrick and Justin have alluded to it, that we've got these mountains of debt in the West that have to be tackled sooner or later, and, you know, Greece has been accelerated into having to deal with it. But do you believe that the democratic system with the current cycles that it goes through is actually equipped to provide answers to these very, very fundamental problems, or do we have to wait? Yeah in every case, for crisis to propel any government into answering some of these very, very fundamental things? Are we going to be able to tackle these issues through peaceful, democratic means? Is there any incentive for politicians to do it? I certainly have an answer from the American point. I think it's an incredibly uh, interesting point, this, that actually one of the problems in America, problem is putting it mildly, is that America's political system was set up um, by all those... Um, it's, slave owners many years ago to run perfectly for what they would regard as uh, the potential of the country and it worked incredibly well for the best part of a couple of hundred years but whether it works now this system where every single organ of government is able to stymie every other organ of government it works when people are cooperative. Um, it doesn't work when they stop being cooperative. And what's happened in America is they've stopped being cooperative and so the whole thing grinds to a halt. Um, and actually, going back to the, 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 um, the democratic side, of it, I think they had too many elections in, in America. Um, the presidential system doesn't work because the president who gets into to office for a second term is almost immediately now a lame duck. Uh, people are no longer interested, and, and so he or she one day is unable to, to, to get through what they want to get through. The House of Representatives, they hold elections every two years for the whole House. It's ludicrous. They spend um, their whole lives, actually, raising money or, or running for office and nothing else. Um, uh, and, and, you know, it would seem to me that it would be much better if they could stop having so many elections and actually think more about um, the, the, the governing of the, of the place. So I, I do think that. But I think on the, on the money side of it, I mean, the odd thing about the United States, they are facing an absolute, if you look at the, the figures... In, in terms of, of, you know, the figures that we've come get, got really used to banding about now with, with, in Europe, um, debt to GDP ratios, um, annual deficits, etc. But the, 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 the debt to GDP ratio in the United States is projected if things are not altered, if new sources of revenue are not found and existing spending is kept going to be well into the 120-130% uh, 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 range in 20-30 years' time. And that, everyone believes, is unsustainable. And that, but, but the good news is there is one way of stopping it. And, and this is an oddity about America, but it, it's an interesting one, that if they 
found a way of reducing the amount of their GDP that they spend on health, um, they could actually solve it almost overnight. It's, it's almost a kind of single political issue that um, it, it seems to me in the next sort of five to ten years could really take off there. Um, and it's partly to do with Obama's reforms, which were in, in part an effort to reduce the amount of, of wastage in America's health spending, but partly it goes much wider than that. They, 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 they're projected to be spending about 20% of their GDP on health um, in 10 or 15 years' time. That's way, way uh, uh, over the unsustainable limit. And if they can't find a way of addressing that, then they're in real trouble. But if they can find a way of addressing it, stripping out the kind of crazy over-treatment of everyone, because I think I'm right in saying that their final outcomes are actually slightly worse than ours in, in, in most respects. I mean, it is, it is, you know, and they spend, at, at the moment, they spend twice as a proportion of GDP what we do. Um, but but if, if they can address that, if they can find a way of getting to grips with these huge expenditures, then they can, I think, resolve their, their budgetary problems. But they have to start to think about how they're going to do it. Emma, Patrick, any views on America's future? A solution well, for America's problems. I don't, I don't know about America, but I think the, quite, the original question was about does crisis, do we need crisis to um, you know, have progress? Is that right? Um, and, but, and does that threaten democracy? Uh, if you just look back through Denmark's history, I think that the foundational, uh, the foundation of Denmark's kind of communal identity comes, as I said earlier, from a moment of national crisis in the 19th century when they realized suddenly it was just Denmark and no one else in this once mighty empire. Similarly, uh, people often talk about Denmark being a, an, an environmental um, sort of lighthouse. You know, they, have, uh, they, they may well be carbon neutral in, in uh, Copenhagen within sort of a decade. And um, why is that? Well, that came out of the big energy crisis in the 70s. It doesn't come out of green idealism. It came out of the, uh, the fact that they were hit very hard, harder than most by the oil crisis. 30 or 40 years ago, and um, that, I, but that didn't, that, that didn't that wasn't a problem for democracy necessarily. It was just, that, it, it just when push comes to shove, they had to uh, create a greener state so that they wouldn't have to rely so much on oil from other countries, and therefore that's why you have lots of windmills. So similarly, the, the actual, the, when you see the crystallisation of this huge welfare state in the 60s and 70s, that comes out of another identity crisis of a fear of the, the red peril. Uh, you know, the Social Democrats thought we don't want to, uh, we don't want to, we want to make sure people on the far, far left don't uh, uh, win the sort of political argument uh, that was maybe going on in Denmark in the 60s and 70s, and therefore they went some way towards creating a part of what people on the far left wanted, a, a big state, but they didn't go all the way. So. I think definitely crisis. The real thing is trend growth, actually. I don't think there isn't a crisis. If you can go back to long-term growth rates of between sort of 2 and 4% as they have in, in, in the US, because that allows the right to say, yeah, we're making loads of money, we'll have a few social programs. As, you know, people like Nixon were able to introduce mm. all sorts of social programs, expensive ones, because, hey, the money's there. And on the left, you can say, yeah, you can cut a few taxes, because what the hell, we can... We can can cope with that. We can we can keep going with the money's coming in. If that growth, if we've reached a kind of 50, 100 year period where that growth is not achievable, mm -hmm. then suddenly all those trade-offs are no longer possible in the American context, certainly to be to be made. And that's what then polarizes the politics. And you're then completely stuck. And and um, uh, you know, if, if if we are there, then I think we are in a 
state of crisis, and I don't know quite what the, the way out of it is. Well, we have to remember always that American healthcare is the biggest private sector lobby in the country, mm -hmm. isn't it? So it lobbies yeah. to maintain that spending. Uh, two more questions. Uh, gent in the back, gent in the front. Tim Hartwell, I mean, in the House of Lords, I've been reflecting on whether to out myself as a politician <laughs> or not. Um, can I take a comment, which is, or make a comment, which is, as it were, peripheral, but may challenge the discussion. Patrick has talked about Denmark as a homogenous society, which is thinking about diversity. And we haven't sort of talked about the Muslim situation in Denmark. Emma's talked about a society where clearly we are wrestling with diversity, as rightly we should. And Justin has described the other side of the Anglo-American pond, where you have already a diverse society, though it's not clear whether the component parts are actually operating in parallel and sometimes antipathetic um, universes, or whether they're actually a single society. Um, at, at the moment, I'm spending quite a lot of time on things related to the euro. And it occurs to me that this is not merely a sort of formal crisis about exchange rates or banking organization, or that's really that. I think it's much more an underlying existential crisis about hegemony and competitiveness and you know, whether the Chinese are going to take over the world. And I just wonder whether the discussion we've had touches enough on that or how the participants think we ought to be dealing with that. I mean, there are certain values which I think, including liberalism and free speech, which are very strong in the West, yeah. but they're not really being seen as the most successful model at the moment. So, if I could try and summarize that, are we dealing with diversity in a grown-up, realistic way in this country? Is that, that we're addressing those problems rather than putting them under And carpets? relative decline, yeah. which is the, 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 the yeah. big thing that, 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 that the United States has to deal with. Yeah. No. Um, and, and I, I'm, uh, Neil Ferguson is about to address all these things on yes. with his with his. Um, he said, and he said on Monday, I think it was, that we should vote for the Tea Party. I quote. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's on the BBC. Uh, <laughs> the the the, um, the issue that any American president faces now, Obama um, and post Obama, is persuading the American people that they should accept relative decline, uh, but still regard themselves as part of the system. And there is a kind of on the, um, I mean, it's an interesting sort of outcrop of, of both the right and the left in America. Obviously, America has a history of isolationism in its politics. There is an interesting, you think of Ron Paul, sort of elderly, slightly strange guy who always runs the Republican Party, and you can easily dismiss him, he's never going to win. But actually, when you look at his supporters and who they are, it's really interesting, a lot of really young Republicans are Ron Paul supporters, and they're partly attracted by his, his very austere uh, economics, but they're also actually, I think, much more attracted by his isolationism. And he says we should not have fought in Afghanistan, in Iraq, we should not, not only should we not fight, which I think a lot of Americans would, would agree with that, didn't go terribly well, but actually in a longer, sort of broader sense, we should not be involved. We're not the world's policemen. We do not need to be doing all the things that we're doing around the world. And if that's the case, then 
things like liberalism, the whole sort of system that America um, uh, proselytizes for and defends around the world is itself then reduced in its, in its potency. And I think that, you know, a lot of Americans, I think, would agree with kind of implication of what you say, that, that it's sorting out the extent to which that is going to be the case in the decades ahead that is the job of, of, of not just American presidents, but actually of, of all thinking people, really, and the extent to which there are other models now that seriously do compete with liberal democracy. Um, and if you, know, if you talk to Chinese people, uh, particularly in Africa, actually, where, where they're, they're so busily at work, and you talk to local people about the Chinese, they, they're quite... They, they understand what's going on, um, and they understand that China isn't a democracy, and they understand that China has no, no particular desire in the short-term future to hand power either to its own people or to other people with, who it, with whom it does business. But it still sort of works because of the, the economic oomph and because of the sense that actually this, this way of working can organize societies and, and, and make them better. And, and you know, if, if nobody, if America isn't there fighting for the alternative view, then you can envisage a situation where that view is going to get, if not destroyed, then certainly pushed into corners around the world. So, mm. you know, I have no answer to it, but I, I think it, you, you raise a problem that a lot of Americans are thinking about and are worried about. Emma, Patrick, views on this? Well, um, I don't know if you mean if America isn't fighting for it. Do you mean literally if America isn't going out there? Metaphorically, and... okay. The, the, the literally didn't go well. But I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean metaphorically. Okay. Well, I was gonna, I was going to question that, and I, and I, I don't know. I suppose I have an optimistic sense that people love to to, to have a say in their lives, and that that Chinese. You and George Bush both. Yes. <laughs> on that, if nothing else, we're on the same page. <laughs> Uh, and that, uh, you know, in a China that's very, very engaged with the rest of the world, there will be more and more Chinese people who, who will, will want democracy. Mm. They're all in Western universities. Patrick? Um, well, it, what's interesting at the moment in Denmark is there are a lot of uh, the Chinese are making sort of big wet, uh, movements towards investing in Danish projects, uh, not just in Greenland, where there's a lot of oil, but also in... Uh, um, on, on, on mainland Denmark as well, but I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure that there's so much anxiety about that. That's not the anxiety in Denmark. The anxiety in Denmark is about how do we preserve this social democracy yeah. that we have, and and how how do people from the Arab world, people from the Indian subcontinent, fit into it? Um, and as, as we mentioned earlier, there's perception that you know it can only work with a monoculture, and that means um, it, it's incredible. You, you, you could argue that Denmark is a slightly more xenophobic country than uh, other places. For, I mean, I'm, I was talking to a student at the Copenhagen Business School, who's born in Denmark, lived there for 20 years, doing a degree in you know, business, and, uh, but says he doesn't feel Danish and he wants to leave to go to England because his cousins uh, uh, consider themselves British Muslims, but he just considers himself a Muslim. Uh, because he feels so um, yeah. uh, excluded, but but I, mean, I don't. I I, th I think maybe what th th they will conclude is that um, you do need uh, a larger workforce to s sustain the state, and 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 that workforce will come from these communities that maybe have been slightly excluded over the last twenty or thirty years. Um, 
but just need to be brought in to the fold in a better way than they have. That's, that's the Guardian conclusion to the Danish. That's the last line. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, one last question. Very swift question. One word answers. <laughs> i try and make it a swift question. Um, is there a requirement now for all of us to think about the world in a totally different way? We have much more of an emphasis on society than on nation-state. Uh, because the world is much more open. The Chinese, there are more people learning English in China than there are people in England. And so there is a mixing now of all of the strands that make yeah. us human beings, and perhaps society is more important than nation-state. Think big. That's why Anne-Marie Slaughter, who is a professor at Princeton University, was an advisor to Obama, believes that America is in fact going to be as powerful, as influential, every bit as successful in the next century as it was in the past, and so slightly contrarian view, and her view is entirely based on what you suggest, that the big thing in the modern age is openness and connectivity. And because America, partly for technical reasons, because they being so fast with the internet, is at the centre of that, that connected web, um, but also because it's education system, she gives the example of Chinese students who come to, to her classes and are incredibly brilliant, but when she says, OK, challenge me, uh, they can't because, sort of, and it's not, it's not a communist thing, it's a sort of much deeper cultural Confucian thing. They, they will not have the kind of um, uh, challenging... Um, 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 to authority in, in their minds that allows, you know, this is slightly um, uh, leaping ahead, but allows you know, Google and all the rest of it to, to happen. And her view is that because of the kind of openness of American society, in spite of its many problems um, and connectivity, that, that that is a huge potential um, boost for them. So, so yes would be her answer to you that that matters much more than nation states but it will also have an impact on those nation states that are able to capture and use the, the, the facts, the underlying facts that you, um, you refer to. Emma? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Patrick? Yes, but for all the reasons I just mentioned uh, I think Denmark is, it's, uh, finds the premise a lot harder. You know, they, they, they basically locked their borders over the last ten years and uh, uh, that, you know, they, they were even more opposed to the European Union than I think we were. So that's something they're still wrestling with. As they used to say, when the state has withered away. That was the prelude to the comment term. Anyway, that's all, folks. Um, thank you very much to our brilliant thank speakers, you. Emma, Patrick and Justin. Thank you. Thank you all very much for coming a long way at a ridiculously early hour and, <laughs> and asking very clever questions. And thanks to the Bishopsgate Institute just for being here and having all this improving Victorian loveliness around us, <laughs> which, you know, you can't beat an oak bookcase. You can't beat hygienic ceramics. It puts you in a good mood. Thank you. Thank you.